Washington Byrne, The Academic Analysis of Blockchain and Other Technologies in the Decentralized Digital Economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Navin, and we are tuning in from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you expert guests and test frontier ideas. Today, we're joined by Professor Annette Markham and Dr. Alexia Maddox to discuss the RMIT University Digital CBD Project. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks. It's great to be here. Great to have you back on the podcast, Alexia. So this episode is about research methods and how you two are going about surveying a city in both qualitative and quantitative terms. Alexia, can you start by giving us an outline of what the Digital CBD Project is and why it matters? I can certainly give it a shot, Kelsey. (laughs) So the Digital CBD Project is really about um, responding to the two shocks that Melbourne has experienced. And the first one has been how the lockdowns uh, in Melbourne uh, accelerated digital adoption in our practices. So we were all stuck at home and using technology to continue to work or to connect with people uh, to varying success, of course. And so that's the first shock. And I guess the second shock that um, we're facing is the rise of a whole cluster of technologies that are commonly referred to as Industry 4.0. And just looking at how quantum computing, for example, Internet of Things, like our sensing environments and uh, the different kinds of Web3 technologies that we're seeing emerging, how they're actually changing what is possible for us and uh, what we could do with our economies and cities in the future. So it's an opportunity to look at a reset or to look at a dreaming as to where we want to go next because we've had such a radical intervention into our life experience. And so the project has really come out of that and it's really about helping Melbourne to imagine what a future digital CBD could look like. So there's uh, three reports or four reports that we're doing to to actually put that imagining forward. Uh, the first report is on regions and precincts in Melbourne, and that's really going to focus on uh, a Dockland Dow. And uh, the second report is uh, focusing on supply chain. So we saw a lot of supply chain shock, and we still do for different, you know, at the moment we're experiencing a supply chain shock because of war uh, and uh, shortly before that it was because of the pandemic. So the question is how do you have resilient and just supply chains? We also have the question of digital skills as we're moving into a a more digitally um, adept and um, encompassing environment. Do we all have the skills to actually access that space? And then finally, just what kind of digital infrastructures do we need as a city to be able to move into that future? So the reports really put a lot of effort into imagining in those spaces and to put some provocations forward. And one of the things that we're doing for this is to do a survey of Melbourne residents to find out how they actually engage with the city and how they see the the city of the future. And, and this is really where Annette's imagining and, and creative um, contribution is has been crucial. Yeah, really interesting. And, and some of your language there about imaginings or, or the reset and the dreaming, I'd, I'd love to come back to. Uh, so that's clear in terms of how it fits into the Blockchain Innovation Hub. And I should caveat that the research is being supported by the Victorian government. 
But Annette, it would be wonderful to hear how it connects to the Digital Ethnography Research Centre and then to kind of dive into how you went about thinking about the survey and constructing it in terms of what you're trying to learn here. Yeah, that's a, um, a very interesting pathway. Uh, and maybe there are some entanglements that happen along the way um, based on our own personal interests and who gets involved in what kinds of projects at the university. But when, when we start to look at the, the challenges that, it, that the digital CBD uh, faces from the two shots, that uh, Alexia mentions, it occurred to me immediately that we didn't really have a baseline or a benchmark from which we could start to assess <laughs> where the city's at, where the city wants to go, or how people feel about the city. So one of the really interesting um challenges for us as a research team, I, I think, was to get a sense of um, where people are in the city. And that's a human-centered question, right? So uh, in order to, to even get some comparative grounding for uh, future innovations, you have to know where people are sitting now. So that's where an ethnographic approach often is used to get down on the ground, so to speak, to interact with people and to get a sense of their lived experience. But in this case, I thought it would be useful to do uh, a survey because it would be an easy way to identify some of the sticking points, some of the desires, some of the developing issues that are on the minds of Melbourne residents as they emerged from various kinds of post-COVID lockdowns or are experiencing some kinds of post-COVID recovery uh, initiatives. Um, so even, even doing a quick benchmarking small-scale survey of residents would give the digital CBD project uh, a good baseline from which then you could do future comparative kinds of analyses. Or you could identify some of the challenges that then your, your own interventions could help to meet or solve. And I thought for sure there would be a survey that had already been done about how people feel about Melbourne and the city in and after uh, the pandemic, but it turns out that there were no other instruments that were really large scale or covered a big area of the city and covered a, a wide range of topics. So we decided to just invent our own survey. Should I tell you a little bit more about how the survey was created or do you want to yeah, know more like about the, the kinds the of questions finding? that you're asking? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And how, how you tried to then engage people in to participate in that as well would be wonderful. Okay. Well, one of the things that that we needed was a survey instrument. And this is where we get to geek out on survey methodologies where, you know, you have um, lots of sociological studies that get done around the world 
in cities, especially focusing recently in the on uh, in the past ten years on smart cities, and um, and these instruments form the basis of thousands and thousands of surveys that get done. So what we decided to do, which was a pretty ambitious plan, I admit, for um, a three month turnaround, was to uh, cherry pick the best of some of the existing instruments out there. So we cover, therefore, a range of different kinds of topics in this one survey. And of course, it could be that we're trying to do too much. That's um, the beauty of (laughs) emergent and iterative research design is that you can take a little snapshot and try it out and, and do a really quick turnaround survey, which is what this one is. And then maybe redo it next year with some tweaks or do the same thing again with the same survey if it turns out that this instrument seems to be um, a really rigorous and productive one for us. So so we're looking at several different general thematic areas for residents. One is about um, your general health and well-being. Um, Another is how you feel about the city and how you engage with the city. And then we move into various kinds of zones of engagement or arenas within which you might um, engage. Education, work, general learning, sport, uh, social life, entertainment, uh, and of course, shopping and other consumer activities. And then a little bit about um, maybe some social services that might be available only in the central business district. But um, in addition to that, we, we really wanted to build a survey that could give us an idea of how people imagine the future Melbourne. And asking the kinds of questions that get people to imagine a future Melbourne turns out to be quite a challenge because it's difficult to ask open-ended questions about um, people's imagination of the future without planting some seed of an idea first. It's very difficult to imagine outside of the parameters we already have, in other words. So so this survey does does a little bit to try to encourage people to be exploratory, but it is, after all, a quantitatively oriented instrument. And so we do give people kind of closed-ended options for picking and choosing different future imaginary statements that we brainstormed ourselves. Um, so that's a little bit about the, the background of the survey instrument itself. That's fascinating. Can you tell me what kind of imaginary statements you posit there? Because you did mention before about, you know, interventions and not wanting to kind of influence people but then also if if you ask someone what kind of future do you imagine for a digital cbd or what what do you imagine the the technology enabled or industry 4.0 future of melbourne it would i imagine so so depend on their um kind of subjective framing or starting point or sort of perspective and beliefs it's such a good it's such a good point you're making because in a way um 
we, by even asking particular kinds of questions and pointing people at particular kinds of imaginaries, are planting seeds of ideas in people's heads. And we're pretty upfront about that, um, Alexia and I particularly, because we spearheaded the uh, bulk of the survey construction, uh, decided that we weren't exclusively neutral parties. And we do have um, ethical visions of what the city might be that's better than what it is now, right? So we're not... We're not interested in just surveying the banal imaginaries that people have that come out of pop culture, which is just, a you know, I mean, that's a, it's a fairly easy one to predict. I mean, that to say that we want flying cars is a, is a pretty easy future orientation. And indeed we do have that as a tick box in our survey that we, you know, <laughs> Oh, wonderful! <laughs> yeah, so we did. We did include flying boxes, flying, bo- flying. We did include flying cars as an option that you could check off as a, a trend that you'd like to see in the future of Melbourne. But at the same time, we also highlighted and foregrounded sustainable city infrastructures, inclusive technologies, focus on green, carbon neutral futures. So we're, we're not um, privileging or highlighting destructive future technologies. We're highlighting and privileging what we think would be a good way to mitigate future climate change crises or uh, we're and we're also privileging inclusive and safe cities so we're pretty upfront about that and um, and it's interesting because it does show how much um, the choice of your question in a survey instrument is actually not just neutral it's persuasive right? so just Zooming out for a moment for kind of context for the audience and listeners, some of the ideas or conceptual approaches that you've mentioned are extremely relevant in the study of any technologies or decentralized technologies in this whole space. And you've kind of, I mean, we could easily uh, make this uh, a very engaging lesson in um, methods because both of you are absolute uh, wizards in in ethnographic methods or qualitative methods. as well as quantitative. Uh, But you've mentioned things like uh, reflexivity and positionality, which are kind of um, very important concepts in ethnography about positioning yourself in relation to the research and reflecting on your own uh, sort of views and and values and prejudices, uh, as well as ethics and the idea that your own kind of ethics are are framing the research approach as what and and ethics is more broadly a framing the research approach and how you engage with people and how you're actually intervening or or influencing them so I think that's just really important to highlight Uh, Alexia do you want to talk a little bit more just in terms of what we mean by imaginations or or futures and, and kind of possibilities 
Yes, I can give that a shot. <laughs> so what we mean by imaginations, when you when you ask someone to imagine something, you're you're first of all assuming that they have this comfortable relationship with their imagination, right? And so the issue with that is that if you're a very busy person, a very stressed person, a very um, uh, applied thinker, the imaginative realm is not a permissive space that you will allow yourself to move through, right? So often people under crisis or uh, who are suffering, you know, socioeconomic disadvantage to an extreme or in trauma, their imagination shuts down. So when you're trying to actually uh, measure how people imagine or see the future of something, you have to put it in such a way that it is a very, if not tangible, clear, understandable kind of category, right? But that you take them into that space where it's okay for them to actually imagine something that they don't have, right? So that's what happens when you're you're working with a full range of a population and inviting people from any kind of background to actually step into this space. And I think what has been sort of crucial to that is the way that the questions were framed. And so Annette did a beautiful job at the beginning of each section, which really prompts that stepping into that imagined space, the non-real space um, of framing it, you know, in terms of, We've just been through this experience. Uh, it's uh, the city is often considered like the heart of a, you know, heart of a, a place. Blah blah blah. So all the kind of language that you use to actually set up the step change from what is it that you do in a city to how it is that you imagine a future to be. There has to be this kind of signalling language that actually creates this more emotive permissive space for people to explore and play and that permission to explore and play you really need to give it to bring people along with you for them to be willing to step into this space that you're saying is 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 what we think the future could be right it's not what it is but what it could be so that gateway is really an important one to, to navigate when you're trying to survey a huge cross-section of people with a huge cross-section of experiences and asking them to imagine a future. For some people that is easy, for other people that requires a breadcrumb trail into it where it's like it's okay for you to do it here. This is a space where no one else will know what you've said and um, for you to give yourself permission to to come with us in it. And you need to have just, you know, some signalling language that says we're shifting from reality to imagination. And in that, it's safe because this is about the heart of the city. And once people kind of feel comfortable with that, then you need to ask questions around which it's likely that they're going to have an opinion on. And you need to ask those questions in such a way that someone is like burning to tell you how strongly they agree or disagree with your statement. So, you know, you sort of need to have it sitting in this space of a permissive kind of real potential 
that has some kind of traction and meaning in how they understand their life right now. So you can only ask questions that ever connect from the lived experience into potential potential futures. And when we were talking about what kinds of questions to ask, it was definitely the case. Like some questions that we could have asked were just too abstract. And while you could say that's not measurable, that's not really what the problem was. It's that the it wasn't a broad enough kind of experience that would be able to connect with as many people's different kinds of backgrounds and lived experience. So the questions that you ask have to provide potentials that are enough accessible for enough people to be able to have a response to and then to be able to have an opinion of. So they're also framed a little bit provocatively in some ways to kind of prompt an opinion. Yeah, Annette, did you have further thoughts on that? Well, if I could jump in on that idea of provocation, you know, we did try to build questions that were actually highly provocative in order to spark strong reactions, especially when thinking about the imaginary, because um, these, these questions want to have people forecasting or thinking speculatively in the near or distant future. And without a lot of preparation or setup with participants, you don't have much time to get them there. And that's, I think, what Alexia is alluding to when she talks about the setup of the question, that some people are able to imagine really rapidly and other people really need breadcrumb trails to get there. So one technique is to offer a, a a question that is polarizing or um, provocative in a way that it kind of pisses people off even so that they can disagree with it or is so exciting that they want to definitely agree with it. Um, And I will say that uh, in testing with with the team some of these provocational questions, they actually got watered down a little bit from what I had originally produced because they had such strong reactions to the questions. Like, let's say that we have a question that asks, how much do you disagree or agree with the statement? I don't care at all about this central business district. Right. Like I, I could care less. Right. Those are so it felt like um, for some of the people on the team, it felt like that was just too strongly worded. So we we did actually um, back off of some of the really strong wordings that we might have wanted. And by we here, I might mean me that I wanted, you know, these really strongly worded questions because I did want to fire people up to get them activated and Mm -hmm. interested, which then gets you people who might leave their contact information to do a bit longer study with you. And then they can, then you can ask them a lot of really interesting questions and they can go down a lot of other paths um, and give you some other great uh, material to work with. But we did want it to be accessible for the most number of people. So we, we did neutralize as to a great extent 
many of the questions that in an interview situation you would be able to make into more provocative questions. It's a really interesting tactic and strategy of uh, the survey instrument versus the qualitative research interview, for example. Mm, Very strategic. And I like that way in as well, to just to not pretend that people actually care about the topic of the survey is uh, actually a very neat starting point in many ways. Um, I'm I'm aware that we have mentioned the word uh, drama a couple of times, and I think it's worth just pointing out Melbourne had the world's longest COVID lockdown. So understanding people's opinions and perspectives here about the city when it was, you know, largely abandoned as people were working from home and and limited to their their radius and those sorts of things are um, pertinent and still, you know, very much in the forefront of people's minds. Can I follow up on that? Yeah, please. Can I follow up on that, Kelsey? Um, Because one of the things that really drove us to create this survey in the first place as a baseline or a benchmark was this idea that um, a living baseline is always also what they call a shifting baseline. And um, a shifting baseline is a notion that comes out of the, the study of nature and people's perceptions of and humans' perceptions of nature as it changes, or our understanding of of situations that are continuously changing. And there's a a comparison you could make between the notion of a shifting baseline and the idea of a frog in a frying pan or the frog in boiling water, where um, we forget or we have a, either an individual or personal amnesia, and this is an amnesia of a cultural sort, or there's generational amnesia, or there might be, you know, citywide amnesia, right? Where where you kind of forget what things were and you, you forget that they were a certain way. Or you have a particular nostalgia that may or may not be accurate about the way things used to be, right? So one of the reasons that collecting continuous survey information is useful uh, and likely the reason that Hilda has done such a longitudinal set of surveys around um, Australian life is that um, you, you can get a wonderful comparison over time if you repeat these studies. And it is really good for us not to forget how we feel right now, that this moment of coming out of that collective trauma, whether or not it was experienced as collective or all the same, that wide scale trauma has a huge impact on how we think about Melbourne, how we think about community, how we think about the future of city life, work life, learning, sociality, entertainment. It just has such wide sweeping impact. And what we do as we shift back into these so-called new normals is that we have a tendency to forget. That is a good thing in many ways that we can forget some of what happened, but it these fundamental changes should be marked, right? So that they can be um, 
analyzed as changing so that we can identify that the baselines are shifting and then make, you know, these sort of uh, comparative assessments of pre-policy change and post-policy change around, you know, digitalizing or datafying the city, right, in the future. Mm, and that's where it links to, you know, quite uh, important broader themes. And I'll make sure uh, I also link in the show notes to some of your personal kind of reflections in autoethnographies about COVID and patterns and, and some of your experiences there that were quite interesting. Um, coming back to some of uh, Alexia, what you said about uh, imaginings and the future, how is it that you go about sort of posing these provocative alternatives or leading people down that path of breadcrumbs to create a space to imagine without imposing a sense of kind of inevitability or technological determinism that, you know, the future of the city is digital, you know, maybe that that is an assumption as well. Uh, that is a fantastic question and it's, it is an art, right? And Obviously, because it's very difficult to look at your own work and critique your own work, it's, it's hard for me to say how well we've achieved that. But I guess what I have is a quite a quantitative approach uh, in how I would actually respond to you here. So when you're thinking about technology, right, the first thing that it's important to understand is everyone uses it differently. Everyone has different types of access and different kinds of skills for it and different kinds of purposes for it. So in a survey, the way that you get a sense of the range of experiences is that you ask a series of questions, demographic questions or skill-based questions that tell you where that person is at. So for example, uh, we've asked a few questions that illustrate some level of what their digital skills and competencies are. And we've also asked questions that give us their kind of sociodemographic background. And so that helps for us to, to be able to situate their experience within what is possible within their life. And while that's, of course, a qualitative question, you've still got um, an entire industry <laughs> that does this through marketing research. So you've got the geodemographic information that comes up around postcodes. You've got all of the sociodemographic um, analysis that comes in association with income, education and um, cultural diversity, linguistic diversity and any kind of uh, experiences of marginalisation and, and the way that, that those demographic variables actually help you to somewhat situate a person within their life experience. So when you can kind of slice and dice your data by the different cohorts who might be responding, and then you can get a sense of whether they are more or less enthusiastic about some of the tech futures that you might have put forward. That helps you to balance that, that sort of tech determinism that might come about by asking specific questions about technology. So that's a very kind of quantitative or, or, or quantitative thinking. It's how do you actually segment out different cohorts and understand what it is that about their experience that actually will inform how they respond to your question. So when you, the way that I often uh, talk about surveys with my students when I'm introducing them, them to the concept 
is I introduced the idea of the pachinko parlor. And, and of course, that takes ex- explanation these days, but not for some. So the pachinko parlor is a Japanese uh, gambling um, uh, game. And essentially, you pour a bucket of balls in the top of the, the tube, and there are pins all the way down, and each ball takes its own kind of unique pathway through and then comes out the bottom and then whatever numbers you get from however many balls fall at a different pin at a different point that's sort of your win but you've got to think of a survey like you take a bucket of balls which are your people and your respondents you pour them into the top of the tube and they all take slightly different pathways through your survey and those different pathways tend to have social patterns that configure the clustering of people's experiences And that's how you start to understand that a survey instrument can actually give you some of that approximated subtlety that you can get more effectively through qualitative work. So you've got to know at which point the information that you're gathering matters. So, for example, with a survey, if it's a large population, I want to sort of see what's representative. And that doesn't mean where people are the same but how different cohorts within that respondent group are actually going to either cluster in experience or diverge from each other. So that is a fundamental principle as to how a survey works. And once you understand that that kind of clustering and and, um, cohort identification is possible within a survey, then you can start to use that as a strength in order to ensure that whatever questions you're asking, you're not actually determining how people will respond by providing the question and response set. You're giving them a range. And you as as the researcher will learn how that range actually translates through social experience. So I've gone a bit kind of hardcore nerd on that response. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering how this links to Annette's concept of digital mapping as well as, as a lens or, or an approach or a viewpoint to kind of combining, you know, surveys and, and this broad area of, of the digital without imposing a sense of determinism. And really I ask because in my research, this is something that I kind of come up against all the time in, in sort of technology communities. Uh, you know, I had to step back and, and write a whole sort of paper on this and just to for, foreground, you know, what people were imagining and point out that it is this kind of collective imagination about this decentralised tech future, not a necessarily inevitable one. It's interesting because um, in many ways I would I would make a a pretty strong distinction between the more deductive orientation that's characteristic of a survey design and the more inductive or emergent characteristics that are part of mapping. Um, and of course, it depends on how they are configured, but a survey instrument, when it's done well, is a, a hypothetical deductive instrument. It is its range, which is what Alexi is talking about, is within parameters that are carefully guided by 
the researcher in advance. So the instrument itself is designed in advance, and then the analytics that come out of it um, are as good as the survey design, right? So there's a limitation there um, because you don't have a lot of room for the emergent characteristics that you would get when you have more um, qualitative techniques. So it's um, so that's one thing that I would that I would probably say would mark the difference. Um, and when I think about how much we lead participants to particular kinds of imaginaries, for example, um, through our questions, the kinds of questions we tend to ask them, right? Um, a survey is going to certainly be more guiding toward a particular um, researcher orientation, right? Whereas I think, I mean, part of the potential of mapping is that it can be this wildly emergent mode of thinking. So, so in, in other words, I, I disconnect the two. I think that there are two parts or maybe two different kinds of tools we might mm -hmm. use to explore the context. One gives this broad and uh, relatively uh, well, one, which is survey design, gives a, a, a very broad number of responses around not much data or information, right? Unless you offer open-ended questions, you're getting pretty small amounts of, of information or data that's usable. It might be across a huge number of people, but the information itself is, is, is within the parameters that you've preset. Mapping, on the other hand, is, a, is an opportunity where you get not as many people, so you have a few shorter range or scope of the people, but each person's developing um, potentially uh, their own set of mappings around what's relevant in the situation. And in that way, they're creating an extraordinary number of potential directions to follow because they're identifying um, many, many nodes of, of interest. And then they're also connecting nodes to each other with lines, or they're drawing a boundary around certain clusters of things, right? All of those are mapping techniques, whether you call it concept mapping, which is node line connected to another node, or you're talking about um, some sort of cartography style of mapping where you're, you're clustering things together and then you're creating some sort of boundary line around those things. So those, those two models, if you are encouraging participants to explore outwardly, are extremely generative and create miles and miles and miles of data or... Um, piles of data, if I weren't going to use some sort of 
U.S.-based measurement system of miles to to clarify what happens there. You're getting loads and loads of data from people <laughs> through that kind of through that open-ended practice. So, in other words, if we go back to the question of how much do you lead people to particular kinds of imaginaries, um, a mapping exercise or kind of open-ended, qualitative, emergent tool is going to enable people to follow their own breadcrumbs. So create their own breadcrumbs and then follow their own breadcrumbs to create new possibilities. In that sense, they might be leading themselves through the kinds of um, technologically determinist narratives they hear around themselves all the time, from any kind of news story they might hear to urban legends to Black Mirror episodes. Flying cars, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, flying cars. In a survey, you're going to have a lot more, um, you're you're determining (laughs) in your own design what people are going to focus on. That's an a priori decision of the researcher. So you're, you're really, and what you're trying to do is get a, a, a huge range of responses and a wide scope of responses around those questions that you think are important or around those kinds of um, technologies that you think were important enough to highlight as a question among 40 that you are limited to. So, so obviously a survey instrument is going to be more deterministic, generally speaking. The question is not, for me as a researcher, the question is not in the, about the tool itself, right? Because the tool is just a tool of collecting information. The, the place where determinism often happens is after that, when, um, either you interact with a participant or when you're doing something with the data that's been produced. And that's, I think, often when a different set of ethics come into play. But that's another nerdy conversation we could have another day. Um, Alexia, what what are you thinking? I'm thinking specifically about the map of the city. So one of... (laughs) Right. Uh, one of the areas of the survey, when we're talking about where the city is, uh, we realised that we had to communicate with our participants and find a common ground as to what we were referring to when we referred to the central business district. Right. So you wouldn't believe how difficult that conversation actually is to have in, um, in a survey because it's a conversation, not a a pre-established definition that everyone shares. So we finally settled on um, providing a map of the city and having uh, the local government authority as um, boundary, the LGA, the Melbourne City Council LGA, as defining what the centre of the city was. And, and sharing that map with our participants and saying, when we refer to it in the survey, this is where we're referring to. So that sort of, uh, there was a lot of conversation and a lot of um, working around to actually come to what that map is. And we can either choose to go there or not in this discussion. But I guess the, yeah, <laughs> um, 
the the sort of the one point of genius that uh, we will come to be very grateful for in the future is actually thinking to ask participants at the end whether the boundary that we showed them was the same one that they thought was the centre of the city. So I'll leave that point there um, and, and open this up for a minute. Kelsey, I just feel like we need to tell you the story of the of the map we included and how we came across the, um, upon the final solution of the map in yes, the survey. Yes, please, please share the story. Because it is such a fantastic methodological and ethical quandary. While I was away, the team was building the survey and then inserted this map, which was a great guide at the beginning of the survey to say, just as a definitional characteristic, definitional, just as a definitional parameter at the beginning of the survey. Here's what we mean by Melbourne CBD. And here's this map. And later I asked, hey, do you think we could make that map a little bit less colorful? Like maybe it should just be, you know, one color because it's really messy and I'm not understanding it. Then I learned that the map was put together by one of our research team as a solution to um, ensure that we get a good sample by postcodes. And it also incorporates the CBD boundaries as defined by the LGA, but adds a couple of other um, precincts or postcodes. And all of a sudden, as we started to talk about this map, we realized that this is not just a descriptive instrument. This is a persuasive piece of information that isn't neutrally functioning in the survey, but is alerting the sample of 4,000 people that this indeed is the city boundary. So when I looked at it, I said to myself, oh, Collingwood. I didn't realize Collingwood was part of the CBD. I'm, I thought I didn't live in the CBD because I lived in Collingwood, right? I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. So what we found out was that many of the people taking the pilot survey were rethinking what they thought the CBD was based on this map that we were providing for them. So the ethical researcher in me has just got to say right here and now that drawing a line on a map and putting it in a survey so that people can all be on the same page about what, you know, what we're talking about is a, an act of data manipulation, right? It is, it is defining a boundary that creates this, this piece of data. It's a unit of cultural information, if that's what we can call data for a moment. This unit of cultural information is the CBD. And that becomes this unit by virtue of people looking at this map. So instead of removing the map, we decided to go back to the, to the perhaps the least interesting of all the boundaries we could have chosen, which is the local government authority, which isn't actually the official CBD boundary 
and there are many different stakeholders in defining what the CBD boundary was. So in a little side comment amongst ourselves, we also wondered, maybe we should invent a new map of the CBD and just put it in there and, and see what happens. Do people like that as the CBD? Or maybe we should put in a blank map and have people just draw what they think are the boundaries of the map. But then that got a little bit too complicated. So in the end, what we decided to do was put in the, the same map at the very end of the survey to say, if you hadn't seen this map before, would you draw the boundaries in the same way that you see on this? Or would you think the CBD is different? Would you define it differently? It's a, it was a, actually a tough question to put in because it's difficult to think about how you word or phrase such a thing. But we really wanted people to go, ah, maybe this isn't the, the exact map. And, and by doing that last question, what we are doing is inviting people to redraw the map and to offer different boundaries in a, in a follow-up open-ended question. But we're also deliberately troubling the idea that a firm boundary exists by raising the question. Mm. We, we're very raising Very political. Yes, very yeah. political. Any so geographic exercise. It's a fantastic exercise. It's a fantastic example of the power of framing the context and framing the questions. It's, it was a great example. So, it's, so that's why I felt like we had to tell you about how the map ended up in our survey and the different iterations of the map. <laughs> Thank you so much for explaining that. I think this has been a very broad reaching and um, insightful conversation to help people sort of reflect on or um, develop their research practices in relation to technology and, and people. That's kind of what what we're all doing here. I would love to hear perhaps a little bit more on your hopes for the future of the digital CBD and any other comments before we move to wrap up. So it, it's very difficult after sort of sitting in that space where you spend so much time working out what kind of questions you could ask people to understand what the potential futures or visions of the future are. And, and then to kind of step back into your personal um, navigation and to be able to express that because you spend so much time kind of playing in the tension between what you see and, and asking questions that are um, not just reflective of your own agendas but of to, to, to have a broader range of, of ways of understanding so that I find that very difficult to quickly respond to you because I've spent so much time sitting in a, a, a space of, of potential that is beyond my own life world. I should so, have breadcrumbed it. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. <laughs> I'm like, ah, <laughs> Didn't create a safe space for you to imagine. <laughs> precisely, Kelsey, precisely. Did we not just tell you? <laughs> But thanks for the permission. So obviously when I see the future of Melbourne, there are a few things that I would like to see. I would like to see a city that is uh, culturally rich, that is inclusive of a full range of perspectives and is a safe and inclusive place for people with various different backgrounds because for me that diversity is crucial to our future. I believe that if we have a very homogenous way of understanding the future, a very homogenous way of 
of addressing the problems and crisis, we will not be resilient and we will break and there will be no city of the future for us. So for me, I want to see a city that really encompasses a great deal of a great range of ways of seeing and ways of being because somewhere in that bubbling mix is going to be the experimental directions of our future. And and that's what I want to see a city of the future to be because it's the only way we are going to get through the crises that we've created for ourselves. There's no way that I could add anything to that statement. I agree with what you're saying there, Alexia. Um, I think if I were going to try to add anything about, you know, what I personally see about the city and its future, it's it's based on the idea that we we really are facing massive crises, um, most predominantly around climate change, where we need to make really wide-reaching, substantive transformations that um, are sustainable, that create uh, possibilities for mitigating the impacts of climate change. So in some ways, the, the digital is a um, receding topic of interest in my own world, Uh, not because it's irrelevant or not present, but because for me, it it needs to take a backseat to um, the very real green concerns, the very real uh, living concerns that people have that while some of it can be fixed and addressed through digital tech, um, much of it is is on the ground in real physical ways. So there is a, I think there's a challenge for digital researchers to think about what, what we're doing in the near future um, that shifts attention away from the novelty of new tech and the excitement around uh, digital transformations that has really played front stage in the last 35 years. And, and what we're going to do with that energy um, for the next 10, right? And I think that that becomes a real interesting um, opportunity for a small turning point or maybe a different set of pathways that don't leave behind, exclusively leave behind the digital, but that incorporate the, the digital into larger, very physical you know, and natural-oriented phenomena. I think that's the challenge. Thank you to both of you or each of you for sharing. And I think um, I'll actually add some links to some conversations from uh, the blockchain space on on just those topics and how they kind of intersect because it is a very live uh, issue around um, legitimacy to point to some of Ellie Rennie's work there. 
So thank you to Annette Markham and Alexia Maddox, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Mint and Burn. You can check out the show notes and get in touch if you have ideas on the podcast at rmitblockchain.io.